Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. You know, we say that every week. Our announcer guy, Don Morgan, says the historic Zone Radio studios. But, you know, Carrie Haskell, we don't just say that. These studios have been in use for radio for, what, nearly 90 years? Yes, it's been very close to that. I was trying to do the math in my head. But, yeah, we, it's the studios have been here on this site since the 30s. So we, not just a thing we say. These mm. are historic studios. We're not implying that we add anything at all to the history other than tarnish. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, so happy to be here with you. It is Downtown the Podcast. I'm Rich Kimball. He's Kerry Haskell. And this is episode number 198. Oh my. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two outstanding conversations this week for you. Second half of the program, simply one of the funniest people out there in the world of comedy, the great Louis Black, will join us. Louis back out on tour, his Off the Rails tour. His recent comedy special, Thanks for Risking Your Life, is a Grammy Award nominee. We'll talk about all that and more with Lewis a little bit later on. But up first, boy, one of the most interesting people in the music world, because he has done it all in more than four decades of making music. He's been a front man for so many bands through the years. First scoring in the mid-70s as the lead singer of Ace, their big hit. How long has this been going on? Toured for a couple of years with Roxy Music then in the early 80s, joined Squeeze and was the lead vocalist on one of their biggest hits, Tempted. Joined up with Mike and the Mechanics and sang lead on hits like Silent Running and their number one song, The Living Years. Had a top 10 solo hit of his own in the late 80s with Don't Shed a Tear. He has toured with Roger Waters, Eric Clapton, has done session work for the likes of the Pretenders, Elton John, and many, many more. And uh, all the while, over the last two decades, creating some terrific solo albums, including his latest that was, uh, well, a pandemic project. It's called One on One, and we had a chance to talk about all that with the terrific Paul Carrick. Let's jump right into it here. The uh, The new album is mm-hmm. so good, One on One, and, and I, I understand that, uh, not that it happened by accident, but uh, you, you guys, like everybody else, came off the road when this yep. all hit a couple of years ago, and then you ended up having more time than you expected. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, we were um, a couple of months into, uh, you could call it a, a world tour, I, I think, because uh, we were we were in the UK. We'd done about 30 shows, and uh, mid-March, when everything closed down, we were supposed to come uh, to Australia, Japan, I was going to be coming to the States with Eric Clapton playing in his band. Um, and yeah, found myself with a bit of time on my hands. So uh, fortunately, I do have a, a place here at, at home, a nice space with a, you know, a rig. And um, although I didn't have any songs whatsoever, I, did, I had a blank sheet of paper, but I, I just gradually, without any pressure, really just uh, fell into writing some new stuff and... Uh, because I, I'm a jack of all trades, I play a bit of everything, you know, and uh, put put together an album. What's the process like? How different is it when you're doing it all yourself like that? 
I was hoping you wouldn't ask because <laughs> it's quite difficult to describe and um, I'm not sure myself, really. I mean... Um, well, I, I asked because I, I saw an interview and you said that uh, uh, sometimes when you're working with others in a more collaborative effort, you can be you can be easily persuaded. Yeah, that's so true. Did, did this give you a result that's more of a well, more of a Paul Carrick album? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not the first time I've recorded tracks by myself. Um, I t I started to go off the idea because it takes such a long time. But time wasn't an issue in this case. And uh, in fact, it was quite therapeutic, I suppose you could say, to to be uh, occupied and have so much time to to fiddle around. So, um, no, I, I, I enjoy that process. I, I like working with other people too, for sure. But um, it's not that unusual. But as for the dynamic of how it actually happens, it's... It's difficult to describe because there's no formula. It happens in various ways. Usually I start off with some little idea. I may be free-forming at the keyboard and just sing something stupid that I somehow then, uh, you know, develop and make it in, into a song. Well, the first song you released as a single uh, did very well. Got a lot of airplay for you. A uh, wonderful ballad, uh, You're Not Alone. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was a little surprised, actually, because um, I, I thought it was, you know, a bog-standard sort of um, ballad. Um, but it did seem to strike a chord with quite a lot of people. I actually got on the mainstream radio uh, over here in the UK, which um, they've gone a little bit quiet on my previous album, um, which is a shame because it's, a, it's a, also it's a good album, but... Uh, there were some uh, changes going on with their agendas down there. But anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about You're Not Alone. Um, yeah, again, the tune came very easily. Um, but I, I wasn't sure what I was going to, what the song was going to be about. But in the back of my mind, I think there were some uh, feelings of, uh, because I had a couple of uh, close people who were struggling a bit with the, um, you know, the pandemic and the repercussions and other, other things going on. And I was actually listening to some sort of talk radio show one day. And I just heard somebody say, I don't, can't even remember what the subject was, but they were sort of saying, blah, 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 blah. And he, well, if you think the world's going crazy, you're not alone. <laughs> and, uh, I thought, Oh, wait a minute, that might work. <laughs> and, uh, so that was handy to have a title. Another terrific song from the album, uh, but I love I Miss You So, and then hearing okay. the story behind it uh, makes it even more powerful to me. Uh, that that was uh, certainly inspired by uh, your daughter and a brand-new granddaughter, I understand. Yeah, that's right. Um, that was in the January of 2020. And, um, of course, you know, things were getting uh, shut down. It, it was a very traumatic birth as it happens, but don't worry, I don't go into detail in the song. <laughs> but it was a difficult birth and a, a, a very anxious time for us all. Then there was the whole lockdown thing, so we weren't able to be as supportive as we would have liked to have been. You know, so, uh, I mean, uh, like all my songs, I try and keep them a bit ambiguous so, you know, the listener can interpret it in their own way but 
that is what it's about. Uh, despite everything that was going on, this is a very positive, very upbeat album, and, and it gets off to a great start. Good and ready it is yeah. such a fun, make you want to get up and move your feet kind of song. Cool. Yeah, well, um, I think part of that was the fact that we we were on the road and it was going really well. And I think to some extent I carried that momentum into um, writing for this album because I think initially uh, I didn't imagine it was going to be, you know, best part of two years. <laughs> I mean, we were just sort of rescheduling dates for in a couple of months' time. So I think I was still in, had a bit of momentum. And um, I think that's why I carried the, carried uh, that sentiment into the some of the writing. Now, you did most of this yourself, but uh, toward the end of the making of the album, things lightened up a little bit, and you were able to get some friends in for some great contributions. Uh, Robbie McIntosh, yeah. you've worked with yeah. many times before, a great guitar work, Pee Wee Indeed. Ellis, uh, Michelle John, yeah. so many talents that added to it. Well, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, as I say, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, and I play a bit of everything, but I don't play the wind instruments. I had written some parts uh, using, you know, samples and keyboards for for the horn parts. But as the uh, restrictions eased up a little bit in the UK, I was able to bring in some people. You mentioned Pee Wee Ellis there. And, and of course, Pee Wee sadly passed away fairly recently. So um, I think probably his last contribution was playing on, on my record. He did a, a great uh, arrangement on a song called Lighten Up Your Mood. And uh, so he was a wonderful character. I'm so glad I got to uh, know him in the last two or three years. Quite a character, quite a legend, quite some stories. And um, that was that was great to get to know him. I mean, we're all, you know, sad that he passed away. I'm old school, so I, I like to listen to an album the way we used to when you when you had liner notes and you would place the needle down and and listen all the way through. and And I love the sequencing of this album. Was that was that intentional? Well, it's it it can be important. I mean, these days, of course, people make their own playlists and what have you and compile stuff. But I think if an album does have a flow to it, I I think it's good to listen i'm i'm like you i'm old school and uh i like i like it i like it. i mean there's no intentional thread uh you know preconceived thread but at the same time i think naturally it does have it does have a bit of a a story you know to 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 tell and, and one of the great joys and surprises of me on the album was hearing a tremendous cover of the, the great kenny odell song that charlie rich had a big hit with here uh, behind closed doors yeah, I love it. I loved that record in the 70s. Uh, and it was just a song we'd often play at Soundcheck. Um, and, and it is my ambition one day to make a, a country record. Oh, that would be um, great. I, I love Charlie Rich's voice. I love the piano playing. The guy's name escapes me at the moment. He's played on a million country records. And was that, was that Pig how, Robbins? Yeah, I yeah. believe it was, yeah. Because yeah. that's how I learned was just by, by ear. I've never had a lesson in my life you know i just sort of uh listen to records and try to figure out how they did that I, I, I always say i wish they'd been youtube back in the day 
I, when when I listened to that version, I thought I was thinking of other Charlie Rich songs, and man, I, you would do a killer version uh, of a song his wife wrote, uh, "Life's Little Ups and Downs." Oh, I'm not familiar with that one, but I'm going to look it up. Who is his wife? Uh, Margaret Ann Rich, uh, Peggy Rich. Oh, okay, but she wrote that, and it, it was it was a minor hit, but but a very bluesy kind of song, which I think is why it didn't score as well on the country charts back in the '60s. Right. Well, the, the most beautiful girl in the world was a mm. was a big hit here in the UK as well. Oh, yeah. We're talking. I'm going to see if I can plunder the <laughs> Charlie Rich. Uh, <laughs> discography there you go we're talking with paul carrick on downtown if we can go uh, go back a little bit it's safe to say that uh, you came from fairly modest beginnings in sheffield definitely yeah but i mean that was the you know the vast majority of people uh it was an industrial city it had been you know hammered in in uh, world war ii uh I, I mean i was born in 1951 but you know it's still the place was still uh coming up you know it's 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 a it's a town in yorkshire it people are quite known for being kind of fairly dour and um you know but um yeah we we lived in fairly austere conditions you could you could certainly say that i mean it was you know we didn't have a heating or a bathroom we we had a tin tub that in front of the fire once a week and uh outside toilet and all that but you know so did everybody else. So as kids, we didn't feel particularly deprived, but when we could play outdoors all the time, you know, in all kinds of weather. So it was a great, you know, childhood, actually. You are, are such a, uh, the epitome, I think, of a, a working musician and artist. How much of that work ethic came from seeing your parents? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a curse, if anything, <laughs> uh, but no, they were very hardworking people. Uh, you know, my mom's side, they were very poor, but, you know, they they worked hard. My dad had a little, he, he, likewise, but he, he was a, had a little more flair and he was a self-employed guy, whereas a lot of my uncles and that worked either in steel or engineering or coal. My dad was a painter and decorator. That's he paint people's houses and he could turn his hand to anything, actually. But they really did work hard you know, to make life better for us kids. And um, I certainly, I'm sure a lot of that's rubbed off on me um, and on my kids even. They, they they work hard and, you know, they don't, ex they don't have any entitlement issues or anything like that. We uh, talked with Jimmy Webb about this, uh, dealing with the loss of a parent. We talked with Graham Nash about it. Uh, I lost my mom when I was 12. You lost your dad when you were 11 years old, that mm -hmm. that's something that in, in many ways you never get over in it. It, mm. it affects the way you view the world, doesn't it? I think it does. I think it does. I mean, uh, it was a long time ago. I mean, I, I'm uh, older than my dad was, but um, no, it, it had a profound effect on me uh, as a kid. It made me a little bit insecure, a bit, bit of a warrior. I was, <laughs> and even to this day, I still kind of, um, when things are going well, I still expect to, you know, you kick up the backside um, to happen. It was a devastating blow for the whole family, but I did have uh, tremendous support we had as as a family and my my mom and my brother. We had my my mom's family and her sisters and my uncles and cousins were so supportive. It was absolutely, you know, saved us. Now, you had a good relationship with your dad, so it wasn't mm -hmm. quite the story that's described yeah. in the living years. But but 
you still wanted to record the lead vocal when uh, Mike and the, and the mechanics put that together. Oh, definitely. Uh, I don't know why. Like you say, it was the subject matter uh, is very different. I had a great relationship with my dad. I loved him to bits, as did a lot. Everybody he was a very popular guy. He was a, a lovely guy. And I only knew, knew him for 11 years, so he must have had a, you know, quite an effect. Um, but uh, what were we saying? I can't remember. I'm sorry. Um, just that uh, you you really wanted to sing the lead oh, vocal yes. in the living years. Yeah, I, I felt so. It was I felt it was kind of a tribute. I think it was more that the fact of losing somebody at that young age and and experiencing that loss, I felt I was able to put it over. You know uh, that that sense of loss at least, even well, though it didn't. Yeah. Let's go back to the early years. Uh, how did you get from uh, from warm dust to forming Ace in the 1970s? Uh, um, well, it wasn't that massive a leap. But, I mean, um, warm dust, I, I thought, was safely locked away in the closet, but it does keep cropping up every now and again. We were a sort of a, a prog rock band. Uh, our hero was Frank Zappa and the Mothers <laughs> of Invention. It was, we, we had some wacky uh, compositions. Um, but sort of with the advent of the prog rock thing and things in London went reverse, you know, people started just playing in pubs and playing rock and roll for fun and being a little bit less pretentious. And, um, two of the guys, um, that had been in warm dust, they got together with these two, uh, guitar playing songwriters and formed ACE. And they said, be nice to have keys in the band, and they said, well, we know a guy, and um, that I was the last one in to join, yeah. And, and am I right that the only reason you ended up singing lead on How Long is because you wrote the song, and that was the arrangement. If you wrote the song, you got to sing it? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much how it worked. I mean, um, I'd only really started writing songs. I mean, you mentioned the other band. With the, they weren't real songs that we wrote. We wrote these epic 20-minute <laughs> pieces. But I started to write songs. And uh, we, we would do them in our sets. And um, funnily enough, how long was the... Well, it's probably the first time I sang lead on a, on a record, actually. But we were playing that in our set. And when we were, uh, eventually got ourselves a little record deal with a small label in the, in, in the UK. And um, that's, that was where, how that started. And and if I'm right, it was about was it your bass player that was being courted by uh, Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, and, and that's really what how long was about. Well, it is, yeah. I mean, we would we were a a, a little band just having fun, but we we were really a, a tight. We were we were all soccer players. We loved, and we were just having great fun um, being together and everything. And then. Um, this, these, this, well, it was the Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, everybody knows now. So they were doing rather better than us. They had a record deal. They had the tours supporting people like Elton John and things like that. And um, they borrowed our bass player for a few shows. And during the course of that time, they were trying to get him to leave us and join them. But uh, so, and that's what it's about. <laughs> but um, fortunately, he stayed with us. Now, speaking of, uh, of supporting people, How Long became such a, a massive worldwide hit, and you guys went out on tour, if I'm right, is the opening act for Yes. Yeah, that was pretty much our initiation into uh, uh, touring in the U.S. 
um, which was quite a shock to the system because none of us had ever done anything like that before. I think we did three months with Yes, and they toured hard. I mean, they burned their way through a lot of truck drivers um, <laughs> because they were playing almost every night in arenas. So this was all pretty new to us. And we were just this scruffy little bar band with, you know, a couple of spotlights on stage and uh, playing our little set. And uh, but fortunately, we we just about got away with it because that that song had become such a big radio hit in the States. It was undeniable, you know. You did a couple of years uh, with Roxy Music and then uh, in the early 80s, uh, got together with uh, Chris Difford, Glenn Tilbrook, the guys in Squeeze uh, after Jules Holland had departed. How did that all come about? Uh, well, it's a long story. Um, Squeeze had been taken on by a manager called Jake Riviera. Uh, Jake Riviera, he uh, founded Stiff Records in the UK, which was a kind of punk new wave label. And uh, he had discovered um, Elvis Costello and uh, he was big friends with Nick Lowe and people like that. And um, he'd taken on Squeeze. Jules had left the band. They needed a keyboard player. They tried, they tried a lot of people. Nobody seemed to fit. And as a last resort, I think Jake said, well, what about Paul Carrick? He's back in town. He's been out there playing with Roxy Music and, uh, you know, give him a shout. So um, that's what happened. And I went down um, to their rehearsal place, sat in, and um, they were about to start recording an album called East Side Story the following week. And they said, well, you want to do it? And I said, sure. I was absolutely blown away by their musicality, you know, and their songs are fantastic. So uh, we talked to Chris great. Difford a couple of years ago, and boy, for my money, he's just—he's one of the best lyricists of all time in rock music. Well, I agree. I mean, he has his own inimitable style, mm. and uh, I got the honor of singing lead vocals on the uh, song "Tempted," and uh, I still think that's a great, great song, a great pop song, and a, a great lyric. Um, the kind of lyric I don't think I could write if my life depended on it. You know, it's just one of those great stories, you know, visual imagery and all that stuff. But you've, you've continued to write with Chris through the years, right? Yeah. I, well, normally on uh, pretty much every album I've done, and I've done a few albums, uh, solo albums on my own label in the last 20 years. Uh, I usually do write one or two with Chris, but we didn't quite get it together on this recent album. Uh, for one reason or another, you know. Um, but I'm sure we'll do stuff in the future. Mike and the Mechanics was uh, such an all-star team of talent. Uh, what was it like to be part of that group of uh, really terrific musicians? It was it was great, actually. I mean, Mike, obviously, is the guitar player from Genesis, Mike Rutherford, and uh, he had started to record what I think was going to be a solo album. Um while um, Genesis were kind of off the road and Phil Collins's career had just gone through the roof and Mike started to make a solo album, but he didn't want to sing. And uh, I can tell you the whole long story about how I got to be involved, but it would, it would take a few minutes, <laughs> but um, I, it was great um, period, you know, and um, a lot of fun. We had some success. We had some hit records, including a number one in the States which uh, I was singing, that's the living years. And um, so that was great. But I mean, 
I'm not involved with Mike and the mechanics anymore. I, to be honest, there's just not enough time to do everything. And um, I, these days I'm kind of more concentrating on my solo stuff and the playing with Eric, which is great also. I do have to ask you about uh, uh, one Mike and the Mechanics song that, that you wrote. I'm a, I've, I've got a sweet spot for whistling on record, and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I love the whistling uh, that you did on Over My Shoulder. And then I caught an interview where you said you're, you're kind of a compulsive whistler. Yeah, I am totally. In fact, I used to room with Chris Difford on tour with Squeeze. He, he actually bought me some bird seed one day because I was driving him <laughs> insane. But uh, no, my dad was a whistler, painter and decorator, is he? And um, but over my shoulder wasn't really a hit in the states. Right, it was right. huge in uh, Europe, and uh, I still do that song myself in, in my own set. But uh, yeah, it didn't really catch on in the states that one. We're talking with Paul Carrick on downtown. In the midst of the Mike and Mechanic success, you released a, a great solo album in the late 80s, uh, One Good Reason, loaded with terrific songs, and and one be that became a smash, uh, not only here, but everywhere. Don't Shed a Tear. And that's just one of the great songs of the last 40 years. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, it was my uh, one and only top 10 uh, hit in the States as a solo. Which is a crime. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's what it is. Um, it was very exciting time to to have a, uh, a a solo record in the chart like that. It was, again, a big a big radio hit. Uh, I had a little bit of a difficult time because um, at that time, my wife got quite seriously ill and um, I had to fly home from the States in a mid-tour and uh, she's fine now, by the way. She's she's good. And um, but I lost a li little bit of momentum there, and uh, and the career went on a bit of a a, a meander. But um, you know, still going strong. So I, I I love the story. We've had Don Felder on our show a couple of times. I love the story that uh, uh, you and Don and and Timothy B. Schmidt were were pretty close to forming your own group of like late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, we kind of did. I mean, this is around, I think it's about 1994, something like that. Uh, I got a call from Don out of the blue telling me he was um, interested. You know, they wanted to do something. But this was when the Eagles, before they reformed sort mm -hmm. of thing. And uh, I knew I knew Timothy Schmidt quite well. I mean, I met him in 75 on our first tour of America. Uh, he was in a band called Polko at right. the time. And um, whenever we were in L.A., either with myself or with uh, Nick Lowe or somebody like that, uh, Timothy would come down to the show. Sometimes he'd bring Don Henley. And um, so I guess that was the connection. Anyway, Don Felder called me up about that. And, yes, I, I went over to California. We were writing uh, stuff and recording uh, these songs with a view to forming a band. But um, to cut a long story short, I've already made it long, haven't I? But um, <laughs> cut a long story short, the Eagles reformed. And obviously, so that was kind of the end of that project. But um, one of the songs that I'd taken over to uh, the States was a song called Love Will Keep Us Alive. And that was a song that Timothy sang on the Eagles' uh, 
album on Hell Freezes Over when they got back together. So Yeah, and an award-winning song. It was the most yeah. played song, I think, of 1995. Uh, it was certainly one of the most played songs. Um, I've got some trophy uh, <laughs> on my sideboard uh, somewhere at home where um, I think it was the most played PRS. That's the Performing Rights Society here in the UK, but... I don't know. Anyway, they got a lot of airplay. Well, and that Eagles connection uh, paid off again uh, in uh, 07 when they did their their comeback album, Long Road Out of Eden, and and recorded another song of yours, uh, I Don't Want to Hear Anymore. That's right. Um, I'd, you know, been in touch with Timothy, and he mentioned they were recording an album, and he was looking for a song. And uh, he asked me if I had anything I said, I, I, I don't, but I'll sure try and write something. So I put the phone down and unusual for me, I just went straight into it and uh, came up with the basic uh, chorus for that song, I Don't Want to Hear Anymore. And um, over the course of the year, again, it's a long story, which I won't bore you with the details, but, um, you know, I was very, very honoured that... Uh, Timothy recorded that with the Eagles on on um, Long Road Out of Eden. So that's a real, that's two feathers in my cap, <laughs> big time. Now you've done so much session work through the years with, with people like the Pretenders, uh, Elton John. Yeah, you're playing on the biggest selling single in the history of the music business. But but I I read an interview where you said that you don't always feel comfortable in that role because you look around and see these other musicians and. You were a self-taught guy, but uh, do you feel sometimes like you've got to work a little harder? Yeah, well, I didn't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more secure about it now. But when I first started to do sessions, I saw it as a way of progressing as a musician. As you say, I'm self-taught. I'd only ever played in, you know, two or three bands. And so my, my vocabulary, you know, musical vocabulary wasn't that large, you know. But I've always had good ears and good uh, musical instincts. I didn't always have the technique to back it up. And I I would often feel in those sessions that, you know, it could go the wrong way <laughs> and I could get found <laughs> out, you know. They'd found out I couldn't really play. But um, it, <clears throat> it very rarely happened, to be honest with you. And um, as I said, I've always looked upon that as being a learning thing and things have happened. I never was one of those guys who were working sessions all the time. You know, I just happened to get lucky and, and get on a few really good tracks. <laughs> and uh, you've toured uh, so much. You've been part of Ringo's uh, all-star band, touring with Roger Waters, uh, with Eric Clapton. Is that, not that it's not hard work, but is it a different feel just being a member of the band instead of out there headlining your own shows? Yeah, it is quite different, actually. Uh, and it's good. They're both good for their own reasons. You know, I mean, I, I love being the uh, big cheese in my own little world and, you know, it all being about my stuff and I get to sing all night. Um, the downside, of course, is if there's any problems, then <laughs> it's all down to you. But um, it's been tremendous experience. Like pretty much the last 10 years I've done uh, most of Eric's uh, Eric Clapton stuff is is uh, touring, and that's just been incredible experience. I mean, obviously the guy is a legend. He's got great uh, artistic integrity. Integrity. He has 
world-class musicians of all kinds that I've gotten to know and and play with. It, I think it's helped my own self-esteem somewhat to be uh, accepted and respected by these these guys. So um, yeah, I mean, when you when you say it like that, it's quite impressive. I you know I have to remind myself sometimes that I've done these things. You have uh, you've been making great solo records for a long, long time now. How important was it? For you, how much of a difference does it make to, to have that own company, your own label, and be able to be in control of your fate? Yeah, I kind of fell into that idea. I mean, I'd, I've made uh, an album or, you know, one or two albums for a few record companies in the past and, um, you know, had good and bad experiences, you know, and uh, there was one experience that wasn't too great where I delivered an album and, it was a good album. I've been working on it. The whole staff had changed and I could tell they weren't really interested in promoting it. And um, anyway, when I was writing an album called Satisfy My Soul, um, I didn't want to go shopping it around. I just wanted, I liked it just how it was. And I didn't want people saying, well, yeah, but you just need to do this and just change that. And a good friend of mine it was actually, he was the original drummer in Mike and the Mechanics. That's a guy called Pete Van Hook. And he said, well, why don't you just do it yourself? And I had no idea how to, uh, the nuts and bolts of uh, releasing a, a record. But um, he helped me tremendously. It was a very small time. We weren't, it wasn't a big deal. I just got some, uh, a distribution deal. I did some, got some independent pluggers to, get some radio play and that's how it started and that's 20 years ago <laughs> and it turns out that that's a business model now right you know that's the way a lot of people are going so um it works out very well for me i think it's a good move uh, you can visit paul's website at paulcarrick.net the new album is so good one-on-one -on -one. so i have to ask this the bbc did a, a wonderful documentary about you a few years ago the man with the golden voice now you you seem like a very humble guy do, do you ever <laughs> You must at times just step back and say, how did I get here from Sheffield? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I don't know how it happened. It was very gradual, mind you. I mean, uh, it wasn't an overnight success. Right. We did have a little bit of overnight success with how long, but then that was quickly followed by a, a trough. So it's been ups and downs and round and around in circles, down dead ends, but it's been incredible, actually. And as you say, when, if I look back retrospectively, it does seem incredible even to me to have got to play with all these great people. But um, I don't look back that much. I'm busy and I'm, I'm trying to do my own stuff and uh, I somewhat succeeded in that particularly in UK and in Europe. I mean, my one regret is not really establishing myself as a solo touring entity in the States, but you can't have everything. Well, we're so glad to have new music from you. One-on-one -on -one is fantastic. Uh, it's a real treat to get to talk with you today. I've enjoyed your music for more years than I can remember. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Cheers. Well, what a great conversation. It's Paul Carrick. Here on Downtown, the new album is called One on One, and you can learn about uh, Paul's tour, his music, and more. Visit the website at paulcarrick.net.
take a quick break for a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we return, comedian Lewis Black on downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. That's a great song that uh, opens up the new Paul Carrick album, One on One, called Good and Ready. And thanks again to Paul for being with us. It's Downtown, the podcast. And up next, one of the funniest people around. You know him from his years of stand-up, his work uh, on The Daily Show. Lewis Black, I've uh, been a friend of our show through the years, but it's been a while since we've had him on with us. And, well, a lot of that because there was this pandemic thing the last couple of years. Lewis's last live comedy show before everything shut down chronicled in a new special called thanks for risking your life. And that's nominated for a Grammy. He's back on the road with his off the rails tour, uh, which comes to new England in early March for three shows, but he's all over the country and it was great for us to catch up once again with Lewis black. Lewis, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a few years. It was back in the before times when last year. Yes. Was <laughs> yes. Back when it was fun. <laughs> Well, it's got to be fun to be back out on the road after a, a long absence. Uh, you've said Zoom comedy just doesn't quite work. No, not for me. It did for some folks. I don't know how. I just, I, I, it, it was the, to me, it was there's certain roads. It was one of the other roads to madness. I mean, you're sitting there staring at a group of squares. I didn't, I mean, I did a few things in terms of talk Q&A Zooms, which were okay. Um, but there's just a, a sense of, you know, it's weird. I think it's just too weird. It's nuts. <laughs> you know, it's, and there's a, a glitch in terms of the time frame of them laughing, the whole thing. It's, you know, and they're not hearing, you know, it's just, it, it's not, it's not, uh, it, it's, it's just not a live audience in that sense. Well, I would think with timing being such an important part of comedy that those, those, even those, Fractional delays would just mess everything up. Yeah, I mean, if you watch um, the, uh, the, you know, when you were watching, uh, you know, late shows now, and some of the folks can't, don't come on, you know, and they're they're on a screen, uh, and I've done this too, you know, in terms of radio from time to time, and uh, certain radio shows where there's an audience. Um, but they're, you know, they, you know, the, 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 the person they're being interviewed is on a screen and they're, they're talking and then you can tell they don't hear the laugh until, so the whole beats are off it, and it just becomes stranger. You know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's just like they're kind of out of, it's an out of body experience. Well, uh, addition to the live shows, you're back doing the rant cast, the post show rants. Uh, that's good for everybody to get a chance to purge once again. We've needed that these last couple of years. 
Well, that's been that's been really. Uh, I'm really glad I finally got back to that. It took a while to get uh, my. Uh, it, was, it was about getting back in shape. I, I thought, <laughs> you know, as I was starting to get back on the road finally and 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 getting things going, I thought, you know, next time, really, if I was going to choose to do stand up, I would do it on a gurney with an IV drip, just lying down, because. <laughs> You know, I'm doing an hour show, then I come back and do a different. It's because it's really a different show reading those rants, and um, uh, but it's been really great. The the stuff that's coming in is terrific, and uh, it allows us to get a rant cast out um, each week, and uh, give you know it allows us to do the live stream, and people, you know, people like the we were on the we we're on the west coast, so it was, turns out people were in Australia were were, were watching us at brunch. You know, and so it was like, you know, like a show from Monterey, California, which is great. And it was all about Monterey or all about Reno. And the show will be all about Concord when I'm there, hopefully. We're talking with Lewis Black on downtown. The new special is great. Thanks for risking your life. Uh, the story behind it is is pretty interesting, too. This was the last show before the whole world shut down. Yeah, it was, and it was really literally. Uh, we got lucky. They, uh, my um, uh, tour manager, grabbed some extra cameras, you know, in case uh, to just record it in a in a better way. We have two cameras every night because of the the rant cast, and so he added two more cameras. And it's not enough for us, you know, a, a, a special with bells and whistles, but it was enough enough to record it and get a uh, what I consider to be. You know, a, a historic. I thought it'd be a historical recording. Okay, you know, it, you know that. <laughs> you know, I may not be known for anything else, but here was the last comic performing before the uh, before everything closed down. And um, but it it uh, it it turned out to I thought to be a, a pretty interesting uh, performance in the in the sense of uh, it's there's an intimacy to that. Um, to that special that others don't. So I, at least, you know, so that was, I thought really also the other interesting thing about it and, and people seemed to like it. So that was nice. And then, you know, um, and I'm sure that people didn't because it doesn't have those bells and whistles. Netflix wouldn't take it and uh, others wouldn't take it because it doesn't have all of the, all of the big, you know, we don't have a, a camera cameras on the audience and stuff like that. You got a Grammy Award nomination, so it's basically you and Taylor Swift, right? Yes, it's the two of us, <laughs> and then we do a duet at the end of the Grammys. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was nice. I was shocked to get the nomination. I was really kind of stunned. I, that made me, you know, I, the recognition made me feel pretty good. Well, and I think you've you've summed up what uh, has gone wrong, right, depending on your perspective. With America, we sold our souls, but it was worth it to get two day free shipping. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the key to it, because uh, that literally was where that special started when I figured, because it took a long time to try to come up with the opening to that show without, you know, because every, you know, because people were coming in, some of them with chips on their shoulder, you know, about, you know, this is my president. Well, okay, well, nobody, nobody in the past 10, 15 years had come in with that. Not, even Reagan was around. Nobody came in with that, you know, attitude. And um, so, uh, so it was finding a way to diffuse some of that, you know, why we're happy 
why we should be happy because the other half of the audience, one half was exuberantly thrilled for for insane reasons, and the other half was exuberantly depressed for insane reasons. And so it was finding a middle ground where what do we share together that makes us happy? It's two-day free shipping. Well, and you've said you've had the right to criticize because you've, you've hated all the presidents going back to, what, at least Eisenhower. Oh, yeah. No, I've never I've never been a big fan of, of you know, the presidents. You know, that's my gig. <laughs> that's my job. My job is I have I've always had trouble with authority. And so some presidents lend themselves to a couple more jokes. I mean, Clinton had a couple of things that were just, and not just the Monica thing, but, you know, he he did his thing. You know, I took my, um, took the state of Arkansas in, in terms of education from 50th to 49th. <laughs> well, you know, keep that a secret, jackass. <laughs> you know, what did you do? For, you, bought, you bought the kids pencils? I mean, it was that kind of stuff. So I always had stuff about them. And I wasn't doing anything more about about him, about the new one, than I was the others, and uh, so it was kind of ludicrous. And then they would be, keep yelling, "Well, how come you're not talking about Obama?" And I said, "Well, first off, because he wasn't fu- funny, <laughs> jackass." <laughs> but you had a great line when the people ask you, "Was Trump good for comedy?" <laughs> yeah, in the way that a stroke is good for a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and literally, that was you know. Uh, a chunk of what I was saying about him. And that, that was all I had to say. And that would still be, well, what do you mean? Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> and I love that line. Now, you, it was really all that had to be said. Right. Now, you grew up, as a lot of us did, at a time when, well, we looked up to science, schools were focused on science education. Where the hell did that go wrong, that, that now it's we just believe a guy with a podcast or somebody on the Internet rather than the scientific Semi-professionals. Well, here's the, I think, you know, what do I know? Um, The 20%, uh, and the more I think about it, the more it's that we basically kind of, we we think that that's what's going on. Well, it's about 25% of the American people think that way. Not, not, it's not a majority. So there's a group that have kind of always thought that way and now have been given due to social media their platform and um, it allows them you know kind of a big place a big a a bigger tent to speak in Mm. um you know and uh so they do but really um you know that that could you know somehow infect the rest of us to allow stuff to happen is crazy you know minority doesn't rule that's the thing. It's a democracy. The majority of us, and then we try to protect minority rights as much as we can possibly do, as long as it doesn't, you know, screw things up. Mm. But you've kind of got to go, okay, well, you don't believe in, you know, I'm sorry you failed the chem class. <laughs> Is there something uh, we can all, if we can all be happy with two-day shipping, uh, can everybody be pissed off about something? Um, yeah, I read this thing in the act where there's um, this person who's a, and I, it's difficult for me to describe. Person says, but it's a legislator from uh, from Wyoming, and and literally for four years ago, um, this Wyoming legislator apparently had said that um, used the um, 
the fact that uh, Jesus was killed by capital punishment is a reason for why we should have capital punishment. <laughs> and uh, and I think we can all agree, I think, um, except for maybe her and maybe 10 others, we can all agree that's crazy. I would say that's, yes. Uh, say anybody who can't, I, I don't know to see that. And the, one, the other thing we agree on is, is that none of us would know how to argue with it. Exactly. <laughs> what would you say to her? Uh, <laughs> what would you say? Hey, I loved you uh, on uh, Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates. Oh, thank uh, you. What was that experience like for you? It was overwhelming. I mean, I just, I, I said I felt like a, uh, like a nine-year-old. Wow. I just couldn't say wow enough. Wow. Really? Wow. So if I put iron filings and something else together and burn them, it'll smell like, um, <laughs> it'll smell like rotten eggs. Wow. That's everything he said. I was just kind of like overwhelmed. I, I, I've never said, I've never really been at a loss for words. And I, I was because it was, it's overwhelming to see, um, you know, your your grandfather's, uh, you know, signature in a log on a ship, or in uh, on a on a, on a, um, <clears throat> on a on a piece of paper on Ellis Island, or uh, you know, applying for citizenship. I mean, it was remarkable. Or the boat he came on. I mean, you just yeah. everything. Every time you turn the page, you go, "Oh my God!" Because I hadn't seen it. Uh, and and a lot of it, they just, uh, my parents weren't, you know, I had old pictures and stuff that I'd seen. Um, but these were like, uh, there was no, there was nothing, um, except for my grandmother, my grandfather, you know, there was not, in trying to get info from them, there was, the stories just got lost in the mist. Mm. And so this really was was stunning. And then part of it is you wanted, you kind of wanted to go, could we do this for, as a six week series? Cause I'd like to ask about this one and this oh, one. Yeah. It's really remarkable how much stuff they find. Speaking of your family, I, you posted a picture a couple of weeks ago uh, with your mother. How's she doing? I mean, it's, you know, it's unbelievable. I mean, she's uh, hanging in. We we don't really get to talk much because she can't. She's 103, as you know, and she it's so talking on the phone is rough. You know, she's not, you know, it's like for most of us, you know, she she's not texting, but she, but she just and she I said, you know, we can get a thing where I can see you and we can talk. She, no, I don't want to do that. And a lot of that has to do with hearing and um and just concentration. But otherwise, if I'm with her um, and others who, you know, and occasionally if you catch her on the right day, you know, she's right with you and can go on and on and on. I have an eight-year-old, and uh, I want to thank you for helping to educate him uh, because this was back, I think, last summer. He had a little buddy in the house, and uh, they went in, in, in my little space, and I heard a familiar voice, and they were playing with my Lewis Black bobblehead. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say inside out. That's really horrifying. That's good. It expanded his vocabulary. I bet it did. I'm sure Mom was thrilled. Yeah, he's got a lot more respect from his peers on the playground now. <laughs> I work, uh, Lewis, with high school theater kids, and uh, you've written a number of plays through the years. What, what would be uh, the best Lewis Black play that I could have my high schoolers take on? 
Well, it depends. I, I don't think you can do it. The, the best one is a thing called The Deal, which is a one-act. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, it, It's a one-act play, but it's got some references that might still be too rugged. But it, yeah. it, it, But literally, I wrote it 40 years ago, and it reads as if I wrote it last Thursday. Well, if I remember, and I've read that play before, if I remember, there's a... There are a couple characters in there that uh, well resemble some people that are still on the on the big stage. Yes, there are, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they I don't go away. I love and the way they gone, there'll be others. <laughs> I know. love the way they it's seal true. the deal. Huh? I love the way they seal their deal. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> and that's the that's the one that kids. I think kids would love that, and oh. I don't think anything that I say in that is too much for a kid to. Uh, to deal with, and especially since we live in this whole culture, too, of, you know, the, the thing that seals partly what makes the deal so enticing is that, you know, it's that the guy can get a chef to cook for the other guy, <laughs> you know, and that's the, the the kind of where we are. You know, it's the great chefs of the Western world. We, you know, it's, uh, we'll get back to that, but I think, um, but it's, you know, there were, you know, before the before the pandemic, I mean, there were anywhere you went in the country, anywhere, there was now like two truly great restaurants anywhere. Duluth mm. open till 10. I mean, you just kind of went, wow, look at what's <laughs> happened. So uh, so I was kind of pleased with that, that, that play. It's, and then there uh, and then and any of the uh, actually the. Uh, <laughs> One slight hitch to full length with work in a high school without mm. breaking a sweat. And it's because it's all kids. You, you touched on something, though, and I, and I think that's really where, where we are, whether it's uh, the, the former guy in charge or, or any number of these people. There's always a new one to come along. We think we're rid of the problem, but somebody always steps in to fill that void because nature abhors a vacuum. Yes. There is. There's always somebody else. And uh, I said, it's like whack-a-mole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can knock and get one out, and then there's another. I mean, but, you know, and right now, you look at it, you go, so so this is where we are. We're in the midst of all of this, and we've got uh, one guy whose face is orange, and he wants to be the president. we got the other guy is the ghost of Christmas past. I mean, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lewis Black will be appearing three dates here in New England coming up in March uh, the 10th at the Chubb Theater in Concord, New Hampshire, the 11th at the Emerson in Boston, and at the Vets in Providence on March 12th. Uh, Lewis, thank you so much for making time for us today. We wish you uh, good luck out there on the road and with the rants, and keep on doing what you're doing. We need it more than ever. I need you to say, and I really appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun talking to you. And if your kid needs some more words, you know, just tell me and I can email him. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Lewis. All right, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, he's just, he's just the best. Lewis Black, so good. Even if he did corrupt my son inadvertently. <laughs> well, it was going to happen sooner or later. <laughs> right. May as well happen at the feet of a master. If he's going to learn those <laughs> words, yes, better that he learn them from Lewis Black than from me. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, if he says them inappropriately at school, yeah, where'd you learn those words, Lewis Black? Yeah, no, or or he'll say, I don't know, the doll in in my father's room. <laughs> hell? Either way, uh, Lewis Black off the rails tour, Concord, New Hampshire on March 10th. Also appearances in Boston, Providence, and all over the country. Go to Lewis's website for more information. If you get a chance to see him live in performance, check it out. Our thanks to Lewis Black. 
and to Paul Carrick and to you for joining us this week on Downtown, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.